0: I know you're as grateful as I am for uh, those who lead the music, for the team that uh, our outdoor worship team that arrives very early on Sunday morning to set up all the uh, streaming and sound system. And um, the logistics of this thing are, are more complicated than it would appear. But we are grateful for so many that work so hard on Sunday before and after when we gather 1 Kings chapter 16, if you have a Bible or or can uh, uh, look at one, I guess I should say if you'll take your telephone and read along with me. 1 Kings chapter uh, 16 is a description of the kings of of Israel. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how that came to be uh, leading up to the time when Elijah, the great prophet from the Old Testament, Elijah, who appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration to Jesus... This, uh, what I want to do is explain to you the context of which Elijah shows up in chapter 17. But chapter 16, in describing a whole long line of these wicked kings, uh, comes to the king named uh, Ahab. And it says in verse 29 of 1 Kings 16, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbael, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that your word is profitable for teaching and for reproof. And for correction and for training in righteousness, you tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we need nourishment, Lord, and we ask that you would feed us now from your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. For many of us, perhaps it feels like we're living uh, with the daily looming shadows of international and national events and forces just beyond our control not only the coronavirus that has produced social distancing and businesses and jobs and the whole economy affected and on a roller coaster we have national protests racial racial tensions the year of presidential election which it just exemplifies all of that and it is difficult not to be aware of these factors every day. Most of us probably don't live that way normally before recent months. And it can take a toll on your faith. Uh, and this is not new. In fact, all through the Old Testament, most of God's people had to live with circumstances beyond their control pretty much all the time. Uh, the history recorded here in the Old Testament can be rather confusing. Because much of the time that God's people, uh, what's recorded about them, it was a time of violence. It was a time of war. There was conflict. There was uncertainty, and there was a downward spiritual spiral. Let me give you some of the big handles to refresh your memory, or to hang some of the details on with the Old Testament. And you may know this quite well. You've you've taught it, and and you you may know what I'm getting ready to to review with you but the nation of israel was composed of 12 tribes of people that were descendants of 12 brothers and as a unified nation israel had three kings there was saul and then there was david and then there was solomon those were the kings of the unified nation of israel but after solomon dies things get crazy Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a fool. And Solomon had the the gift of wisdom, but Rehoboam seemed to have the gift of foolishness. And he immediately kicks off his kingly administration by doing what's always proper and appreciated. He imposes severe taxes. There was an army officer in response to this says, no way. And that army officer leads 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel out. He leads them in a revolt. And this group of 10, this contingent of 10 tribes decided that they would form their own nation and they would have a king and his name was Jeroboam. So the first king, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, And then these 10 tribes say, we want a different king, and they have Jeroboam. So the nation of Israel now is split. You have two tribes, and you have 10 tribes. The two tribes who stick with Rehoboam were the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. They were known, became known as the southern kingdom or Judah. The other 10 tribes formed the new nation called Israel. Israel. So to the north you have Israel and to the south you have Judah. It was north and south on the map. And so for the next several hundred years God's chosen people existed as these two nations, Israel and Judah. And they had two different governments. And each had a long line of kings. There were 19 kings for the north and there were 20 kings that came about in the south. And those kings, not all of them, but most of them, were some of the worst men in history. Most were evil. And a brief survey of the northern kings leading up to when Elijah shows up will tell us what Elijah was up against in serving him. Let me tell you about some of the kings that the northern kingdom, I mean, that, that... the northern kingdom had had leading up to when Elijah comes. First, there was Jeroboam. He became the first king of the new northern nation of Israel. He was an evil man, and he led God's people into idolatry. 1 Kings chapter 13 said he made priests for the high places again from among the people. So his reign was recorded and looked back on, and the things that stood out were murder, Deception and religious perversion. That was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was followed by Nadab. That was his son. He continued in the same idolatry as his father. He was murdered after being king for just two years. And the man who murdered him became the next king, and his name was Baasha. And he was a paranoid mass murderer. He not only murdered his father, he he murdered many others. And so he reigned for 24 years, and it was a reign of evil. After him came Elah. That was his son, Basha's son, Elah. While in a drunken stupor, he was assassinated by one of his servants named Zimri after only two short years of ruling as king. Zimri. Now, this is what follows here is is incredible. Zimri then becomes the king, the one who had assassinated Eli, and he rules for only one week. He rules for one week, and then the people beg Omri, who was a commander of the army, to be their king, and Omri agrees to do so, and he lays siege to the city where Zimri is, and in desperation, Zimri commits suicide. That's in in in. Uh, later on in in first kings so omri becomes king and he reigns for 12 years he never sought the lord in fact it says that he exceeded all of his predecessors in their in his evil so this line of kings that i've just told you about had ruled for about 60 years bloodshed murder idolatry and I imagine there were people thinking, wow, it cannot get any worse. But they were wrong. And it was about to get worse when Omri's son became king, and Omri's son was named Ahab. Ahab has a very unique distinction in the record of the kings. First Kings 16, what we read said, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab not only followed in the footsteps of his evil father, King Omri, he exceeded him in his wickedness, and he ruled for 22 years. Now, Ahab by himself would have been bad news. But what made it worse was his wife, Jezebel. How did Ahab come to be married to such a woman? Well, money. His father, Omri, when he was king, wanted a diplomatic alliance with the nation to the north, a pagan nation, Uh, the city of Tyre of the Sidons, the Sidonians. And their king was named Ethbael, and the princess was Jezebel. And so Omri wanted protection. He wanted commercial interest, and he wanted protection to the north, And so he made this this, uh, uh, agreement with them, and they sealed it, as was done often in those days, with a diplomatic marriage. Uh, Ethbael gave Jezebel to be married to Omri's son Ahab. Now, when she showed up, when she came to Israel, she brought more than just some family pictures and some furniture. She brought along an entourage. She brought 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, which was the queen mother of all the gods. And so she brings an entourage of 850 false prophets. Uh, She's not going to be content to have religion be a personal, private thing. She is there to promote this among the Yahweh worshipers. What was the worship of Baal? This is important to understand how this was so prominent in that day. Baal was worshiped in those days under a variety of names and and there were many variations, but in archaeology, Baal was depicted as the deity, the nature deity, whose primary function was to control weather and fertility. Baal was a storm deity, the rider of the clouds. In fact, This god was often portrayed uh, with a lightning bolt in one hand, ruling over nature. And so you can see that when cultures relied on agriculture, there would be a temptation then to worship the god of nature and the one that that controlled fertility and agriculture. Now, what's my point here? Uh, my point is when elijah arrives it was a dark time spiritually uh, more so than we can even imagine uh, some people on the planet today that are persecuted and in complete civil unrest they can imagine it but but we cannot uh, or we can't uh, we can't say that we've experienced it so in chapter 17 one of the great changes in the bible is when elijah shows up and ahab is the king and it just simply says as i read to you a moment ago in verse one that he comes before ahab and says as the lord the god of israel lives before whom i stand there shall be neither rain nor dew these years except by my word and so for the previous five chapters in first kings the author has been describing this downward spiral of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Elijah appears. And then he disappears for a few years, three years. And he was not only a worker of miracles, but he experienced miracles in his own life. We won't get to those today. But today I want you to notice two things about Elijah that come from this encounter with Ahab. Uh, just, just two things. I want you to notice his name and his boldness. His name means the Lord Jehovah is my God. Elijah, the Lord Jehovah is my God. And we see here how bold he was. The true boldness is when a person is is willing to stand, even alone, to stand in the gap. When everyone else around him or her is going the other direction. True boldness is willing and ready to stand up even if they are alone. No one was there. There's no indication that there's anyone else around to support Elijah and encourage him to obey the Lord. He is not waiting for anyone else. He's not waiting for the crowd and the popularity to turn before he makes his move. And what might he face before going uh, before the king and saying this? Obviously, certain death, torture, imprisonment, complete loss of freedom. We have no indication he's given the outcome before he goes. So he's risking his life to make such a pronouncement in the face of the king who had complete power over all of his subjects. But what made him bold? And these are things that apply to us. It's not a special giftedness. It's not something that was so highly unusual. All of these can apply to us as well. He was bold, first of all, because he knew God's commands. He knew God's law. He knew that God had said, You shall have no other gods before me. There was no question whether Baal worship was wrong. There was no doubt in his mind that what was being promoted by Jezebel and Ahab was wrong and sinful. He knew God has spoken. There was no need to pray about whether should we go in this direction or not. And this gave Elijah conviction. And he knew God's commandments, and he knew that they were being violated by the king and ultimately by the nation. That made him bold. He had conviction. Second, he was bold because he believed God's promises. I assume he knew the words that the Lord had spoken to Joshua years before. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He knew God would be with him. He would not leave him or forsake him. And so when he went into the presence of Ahab, he knew he was not by himself. He knew that God God was with him in accord with his promises, and that gave him boldness. If you and I are to be courageous even in making disciples and standing in the gap, we need to know God's promises. The Bible's filled with those. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, and when it said in Matthew 28 that he came up and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's the command, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. What does he then promise at the end of that? Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. There's the promise. So he gives the command, but the promise is that he will be with us as we seek to do that. We're not functioning in our own power. So you are not alone in your service to him. And that should make you bold. It made Elijah bold. He knew the laws of God. He knew the promises of God. But he was also bold because he knew that he was a representative of God. Of course, we can realize and and we'd be right to say, well, I'm not a prophet like Elijah. But the Bible says we're all ambassadors for Christ. As his followers, 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And so you believer are his representative and that can give you boldness when you're fearful. A few years ago many received a report from a a well-known Bible translation ministry working to translate the Bible into eight different languages in a particular Middle Eastern country. And in the office where they served, where they did their translation work. It was stormed one day by militants and who had rifles, and they shot two of the five staff members, two of the five translators. They shot them on the spot. And then they shot up the building, and they shot up the computers and destroyed everything they could find. Two of the other translators took their bodies and fell on top of the lead translator. The terrorists had run out of bullets, but they took their rifles and they bludgeoned to death those two that had fallen on top of the lead translator. So out of those five, only the lead translator survived. And an announcement went out from the ministry, primarily from this man. And it went out, and you would think, well, was it an announcement saying that due to hardship they were shutting down their office in that part of the world? Was it an announcement to say that it was just too risky to continue doing what they were called to do? No. They were announcing that the lead translator was putting together a new team. And they were redoubling their efforts in that particular place. And they were able to salvage the hard drives out of the damaged computers, which contained all the work that they had done on those eight languages. And so the work of Bible translation was moving forward and has continued to this day. How do you explain such boldness? That's not natural. We might say it's not even rational. You explain it because there was a deep conviction that they were ambassadors for the king and that God had called them to be there, and he was going to continue to do that. That's what Elijah had that enabled him to be bold. But there's more. Elijah was also bold because he knew and used the resources that were available to him. And those are the same resources we have. And first is prayer. We know he prayed because in the book of James Elijah is referenced and Elijah is held up as an example of prayer. In James it seems as though he played a part in the particular work. James gives credit to the fact that The rain did not come except by Elijah's prayers. In James 5, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. James is saying that the energetic prayers of a righteous man are potent, potent force calling down the power of god for restoring the weak struggling believers to spiritual health and james tells us he not only prayed but he prayed fervently it meant he was serious about it it was important to him he continued in it he was intense he gave his strength and energy to his prayers are your prayers earnest you say well how do i know well this won't be true for everything, but are there things that you prayed for for weeks, months, years, maybe even decades? You say, Yes, there are. I'd say, Well, that's fervent prayer. That's fervent prayer. That is intense prayer. We used a section from the Westminster Catechism earlier uh, from What is the Chief End of Man. But in the Children's Catechism, there's a question that defines prayer, and it defines prayers as prayer is asking god for what he has already promised to give us prayer is asking god for what he has already promised to give us years ago at clemson university there were two students and they became very burdened about this very thing to pray and so they began to pray every day at at dinner at the dinner time that the god would send an awakening on the campus And they began to gather others, and by the end of that nine-month school term, there were 200 students who were coming to that meeting daily and praying. And they weren't just praying for things in general, they were praying that God would raise up laborers for the harvest, for the great commission from their campus. And the campus was greatly affected. Scores of missionaries and pastors and godly people came out of that movement from Clemson and are now serving Christ full-time around the world. So I close just by asking you, are you using the spiritual resources that God has put at your disposal? Do you know his commandments? Do you know his law? They reveal his will. Do you know the promises that he gives in obeying those? And rest your obedience on those promises. And do you pray earnestly, intensely? Let me just ask you, how might the problems in your life that you face how might those be affected if you pray earnestly about them even if God doesn't change the circumstances he'll probably change you and how you view those thankfully we have a savior who prayed earnestly while in heaven and guess what he does right now he's praying for us he intercedes for us right now before the throne of God Have you accepted him into your heart as your redeemer? Have you put your trust in this one who is at the right hand of God interceding for his children? You can do that today. You can say, Father, I trust you. I want to be the person you want me to be. I repent of my sins. I want to depend on you even in in dark times that may get much darker or maybe not and ask that you would move in my life and move in other places. Let's pray together our father we're we're amazed when scripture itself says elijah was a man with a nature like ours and yet he prayed and and you moved and we hold him up on a pedestal and and probably think of him as some super servant of yours and yet we see that he suffered from depression he feared later he ran for his life he doubted you he, he prayed you take his life and uh, we pray that even this today and this coming week that we would grow in these areas of knowing your commands, of resting on your promises, and of praying more earnestly. And we ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with our our final hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Let's stand and sing together.